0: Noon or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on January 19th, 2022 and features education activist and host of the Social Impact podcast, Lynn Straw Davenport. Lynn has been involved in the battle to decentralize public education for many years, at one point running for the local school board in her community outside of Dallas, Texas. She has consistently resisted the imposition of educational curriculums originating at the national level and advocates against an emphasis on teaching to a standardized testing regime. From her perspective, such standardization has resulted in the teaching of facts at the expense of critical thinking techniques that have historically defined the characteristics of an educated person. Lynn's work seeks to empower communities with the ability to construct individuated curriculums and implement alternative educational practices that reflect the diversity of local community and culture. Through this empowerment process, parents can have a stronger voice concerning what their children learn in school. Over the decades, through federal funding and other mechanisms, public education has become so centralized that local school boards are little more than bureaucrats required to implement a system dictated from above. The ability for parents to engage in meaningful dialogue concerning their child's education with the ability to result in substantive change has been reduced to next to nothing as local school boards have little power over these decisions. The end result has been the complete control by a handful of people within federal institutions to influence how the next generation views the world. This also allows for the insertion of political and social constructs that conflict with many community and family values. Lynn sees this as an attack on the sanctity of the family unit itself and dedicates her work to re-establishing the connection between education and a parent's right to choose the worldview they wish to share with the next generation. In recent years, the battle has expanded to include an emphasis on social-emotional learning that alters not only how students think, but how they feel as well. With the introduction of modern blockchain technologies and artificial intelligence, the public education system is now capable of analyzing mountains of data compiled to influence each individual student on the psychological level. This level of social engineering, potentially eliminating local and parental influence, has never before been attempted Lynn's work seeks to educate parents about this impending new system of education already well on its way to implementation before it's too late. Find out more on Twitter at Lynn S. Davenport. For more information about The Shift, to sign up for the newsletter, subscribe for feature-length episodes of the show, go to www.theshiftnow.com. You can also access the podcast and discover more about my personal perspective by following the Populist Papers blog on Substack. Join the conversation on the Doug McKenty Facebook page. I'm at dmckinty on Twitter or find all my work posted on Rockfin, Odyssey and any of your favorite podcast hosting sites. I want to thank Straw Davenport for agreeing to this interview and thank you for helping to make the shift. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this 105th episode of The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. I'm joined today by Lynn Straw Davenport. She's been uh, an activist in the school scene, in the education scene in uh, Dallas, Texas, for some years now. And of course, as the COVID situation has rolled on through, uh, that's become even more of a priority. So I'm looking forward to having a conversation, not just about education in general, but um, about how... COVID and the lockdowns and all of this is starting to affect even more uh, the situation that she was dealing with prior prior to COVID. So uh, Lynn, if you want to just uh, introduce yourself to my audience and uh, give people a little bit of of your history in terms of your activism with your local public school district.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me, Doug. Absolutely. Uh, Yes. So I'm a parent of public school kids. Uh, Two now are in college. One is still in high school, senior year. So I'm on the home stretch. And uh, I started getting engaged in what they were learning, how they were learning, who was profiting off of that. I saw a really uh, a, a serious issue with standardized testing and narrowing the curriculum and making it all about what's tested is really all that gets taught. And so that sent me down all the rabbit holes and understanding the bills behind it, coming down from the federal level, No Child Left Behind, Every Student Succeeds Act, even going back to the 60s, 1965, Elementary, Secondary, and Secondary Education Act. So uh, fast forward, I... Uh, I I started researching what was happening with data mining and a lot of the contracts that were given to these companies through our school districts. Uh, but as far as my background, um, I worked for Arthur Anderson. I was a, an IT recruiter and, and worked in their business consulting department before the whole implosion with Enron, you know, the uh-huh, right. that big mess, uh, and uh, quit to stay home with my kids and here I am. I, uh, I run a, a podcast called Social Impact that exposes the impact investing market and a lot of things that happen in, at the local level with our schools. And then for 11 years, I've served uh, as a, a coach for job seekers, unemployed people. Mm-hmm. And I just quit doing that in the fall. And now I'm focusing 100% on education and what's happening in the,
0: the schools. Great. And you ran for the local school board, right, a few years back?
1: I did in 2017. I ran for a seat on the Richardson ISD Board of Trustees, and I lost. I went up against an incumbent who works for a Gates-funded public-private partnership, and so I wanted to to get her off of the board. and uh, And so I I got about 46 percent of the votes. It was it was uh, it was a tight race. Uh, but it ended up being a good thing. I think, in the long run that i'm I'm a free agent. I'm able to 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 move uh, to really go where I want to go and and talk about what I want to talk about and the right. school board. It's kind of a lost cause at this point. Um, I don't know how one person really can can turn the tide on a board of seven zero lockstep voting is what we see.
0: You know, I just did an interview with Renette Senum, who is running for uh, California governor now, but she was the mayor of uh, Nevada City. And she tried to stand up against the lockdowns and what Gavin Newsom was trying to do from her Mm -hmm. information. There was a a different and better path forward. And she actually ended up resigning from the city council there because she ran into the same thing. So... um, I think what I'd love to get into with you is just how challenging it really is to affect policies, um, you know, be it like the broader city council policy that Renette was dealing with or specifically in your area of education on the local level. Like, it seems like so much is uh, dictated from either the state or especially the federal level that uh, how much power do these local school boards even actually have?
1: Well, it's funny you say that because uh, our district, I've complained for years that they don't exercise local control because if everything trickles down from the federal level and the state level and you have the, the Department of Education and then you have the these, really, uh, a lot of them are unfunded mandates and, and bills that, uh, at, well, like in Texas, the legislature had 7,000 bills. This is a, a few uh, sessions back. More than half of them were education bills, which told me our our schools are a, a huge target. Mm. But um, when it comes to the mask mandates, they all of a sudden, my superintendent was saying, "Well, we we really want to." We, we need to make local decisions. So we want to exercise local control. That's the first time I had ever heard her say, oh, let's, you know, we're going to make decisions locally. Everything they do is cut and pasted either from bills or even policies that the school board will adopt and vote in favor of. Those all look exactly the same They mirror all of the other districts in the, the state. So they don't really make local decisions. They don't really want to. And I've been advocating for local decisions, local responsibility, and really taking ownership so that we make better decisions because they are, uh, you you know, it should be those closest to the kids,
0: right? They don't want that. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think that's the biggest issue that we're facing today. Not uh, again, just not in, in terms of education, but it's such a huge part of everybody's life, of course, but in general is, is the lack of local control and almost complete inability from people like you and I to affect or, you know, real change in these institutions that are, are directed above. Um, I think if you could comment on that and then we could kind of get into the curriculum thing, because this is what standardized testing does, right? It, you know, it, it actually impacts the curriculum of every school in the country and it forces everybody across the country to learn the same thing. And all the teachers teach the same thing. So you know, parents and local school districts and, and teachers have zero ability to determine exactly what their children and what their students are going to learn.
1: Yeah, I think it especially, I see this mostly in these affluent areas because my kids were put in a Title I school, but then it kind of flipped the the demographics and the, uh, we, we started seeing a lot of teardowns and you know, mansions going up. And so the demographics mm-hmm. changed, but uh, people, Think that if it's affluent, that it, that the teachers write the, their own curriculum, that it's all homegrown, it's some sort of, yeah. You know, they don't know what they don't know. But the push for a standardized ed- education is really happening nationwide. Texas supposedly said no to the Common Core, which was supposed to roll out across all 50 states, the Common Core state standards so that there would be alignment if a child moved from one state to the other, that they would being the same at the same point. Uh, that wasn't really the, the agenda behind Common Core, but that's how it was pitched. Well, Texas did say yes to the career and college ready standards, which was Common Core aligned. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's all just deceptive semantics. But um, you know, this this idea that we would have this standardized education, everything would look the same in every state. And then this is a global. Issue, so we're seeing this. Uh, I've been watching the OECD, which is uh, I something I can't remember what it stands for. But Andreas Schleicher came to Texas and was presenting, uh, talking about what education looks like across the globe. And uh, you'll see they would assess what's going on in Singapore and all of these places that they would hold to the these uh, <laughs> really. Um, they would put Singapore and some of these and even China on a pedestal. But if you look at how they're learning, it's, it's very standardized. And I think that America has been known for, you know, the free free enterprise and uh, we've got this, uh, it, you, you know, you can go all 50 States are different and you can get a, a different um, you know, you've got different cultures and like who wants a homogenous world where everybody's what? learning the same thing, whether it's in Singapore or, and, you know, it's like exactly. Lake City. Yeah. We don't want
0: that. <laughs> it's always surprised me that the people that push the strongest for diversity tend to then be attracted to these very top down uh, educational curriculums. Um or, you know, medical services or healthcare services and and all of this, which are Mm -hmm. amazingly homogenizing. I mean, it's like, if you want to have diverse community, you've got to allow communities to make these choices for themselves. Um, It just fascinates me that because I've, you know, I feel like um, those who are typically labeled as conservative, if you want to use that, that paradigm, uh, get get labeled as not believing in diversity, but the only way to create a diverse situation is to is to decentralize power and allow communities and allow families to have input and make choices about uh, you know what their kids are going to learn or what healthcare they're going to use.
1: Yeah, and I I think that um, because of that desire for decent, decentralization, then what we're seeing is they're inserting blockchain, a big push for blockchain, and I don't know if you want to go into that, but um, putting the kids and their whole, what they call lifelong learning, they want to put their whole schooling uh, experience on blockchain so that all of their records would be uh, on, uh, you know, it's like stored, uh, basically blocks of data stored Mm -hmm. on these digital wallets. And uh, so it's pitched as decentralization, but really what it does is it, it actually centralizes everything on to for now it'll be you know an iphone or a device Uh, but it's pitched as being this convenient thing where you can get your transcripts and you'll have your all your medical history on there your mental health history your uh, vaccine passports and um, even uh, yesterday, I just saw that the same company that's doing this in Dallas, it's called Greenlight Credentials, is now working on doing it for physical fitness, like you know the physical fitness test you took as a child in PE, and that would kind of mm-hmm. tell you where you were and how many sit-ups you can do and your endurance and all of that. Now that's going to be put on blockchain. And so it's this huge pilot thing that's happening in Dallas ISD through the education service centers, which is through the state. Uh, It's kind of how they uh, roll out some of the technologies and and training and professional development. And then the uh, Dallas Community College District. uh, I mean, this all goes up to the Texas Education Agency. So I'm watching that very closely, because I do believe that the the push for mandatory masks, masks, And then we'll see the mandatory vaccines in order to be enrolled in school. And then we'll have vaccine passports to prove it. And so the way that they will bring this, the blockchain is the technology of choice for vaccine passports. And so I'm following this green light credentials because Mm -hmm. they're using IBM, Hyperledger, Fabric. Uh, It's the technology used for blockchain. Um, And I'll just make one side note is that During the Holocaust, Hitler partnered with IBM, their Hollerith machines. Uh, That was how they tracked and they used those punch cards. That's how they tracked people. So think about that in terms of, okay, so now we're using IBM blockchain technology. To me, I can see a real parallel there because uh, it's the perfect tool to be able to control how you do everything, whether it's seek medical care, go to public school, uh, whether you'll be allowed to shop in this store, or that store, and so being able to, uh, they'll, they'll mandate uh, you'll have to show your vaccine status. Well, so
0: that's, that's what, right? I mean, it's so fascinating to watch. I mean, we've heard uh, in in Klaus Schwab's book from the World Economic Forum that the coronavirus was going to be used. Uh, As an opportunity, quote unquote, to usher in uh, this fourth industrial revolution, which includes all of this blockchain use and this data collection and all of the rest of it. And so mm-hmm. it's so wild, you know, that someone like yourself, who's interested in the education field, you can see it coming. I think a lot of people, you know, are, are only seeing, oh, well, you know, it's, it's neat. It's convenient that I can have this, this tool that keeps track of my, my vaccination status, but
1: yeah, one-stop shop. It's like, you got it all, all right. right. Here. Like, here's my, here's it's my, just my info.
0: It's and very I own, clear. Say
1: I own my own data. That's the, it's pitched as you will own your own data. Right. And it and but that's not how it is. And this is a for profit deal, it's also a captive market. So that's why they're targeting the schools because think about the low right. hanging fruit there. And Texas has we have oh gosh, uh, five point something million children in Texas, and we and we also have floods of immigration. So we get about 80,000 new students a year, and that's just another opportunity to put the children they call it womb to tomb. Career, or cradle to career. You'll you'll hear uh, pre-K to gray is the new blockchain term because they want, they really truly want to access the children front in, in utero all the way through, and they will be on block on blockchain. So the schools are a huge focus, and that and how this whole nexus of of these players have come together. I just um, you know I'm not clairvoyant or anything, but I've been able to study the patterns, the players. And figure out okay this is where they're going with this i didn't see it years ago but i did see uh the who i just didn't understand the why
0: right yeah i mean it is fascinating because once you look into this you can really see that they've been working on this for such a long time and you can see the direction that it's going in and that's why when it's portrayed as you know this is just going to be your vaccine passport Uh, it's actually also going to be used to track and trace all of your education, where you've been and then where you're working. And I mean, basically everything about our lives. So it's not just a healthcare issue at all. Like this is literally the, the imposition of this huge new system that's going to be definitive of the fourth industrial revolution. So, now, getting this perspective from the education point of view, you know, hopefully my listeners can take away that uh, this is not going to be just medical. This is going to be about everything—the Internet of Things, even the Internet mm-hmm. of Bodies—that we've been hearing about. So it's true. I, I do want to get into before we really get into the meat of all of that, um, where all of this stuff comes from, because you mentioned the the public-private partnerships and. Uh, also, that term captive market. I think that so much of this has to do with exactly that. I mean, it, you know, people mm-hmm. want to they want to talk about the the profitability of all of this, um, and I think, and that's where it comes in for me with this difference between you know decentralizing and having the main street. Uh, economy be profitable. This is very different than the kind of profitability that we're seeing in the creation of these captive markets, like you're talking about, that are basically state imposed, but then just a few corporations that are going to profit wildly off of this fixed market that they've captured through government control.
1: Well, and I'll give you an example of it. I, I, there was this there's this woman who works for iStation, which is a reading response to intervention software. It's like a reading software that they got the big fat contracts after No Child Left Behind passed. Well, that's a perfect example of the free market, which of course, I'm a proponent of,, uh, but the free market in, So, what happens is the elected bodies do not serve as the checks and balances. So, the free market can just move on in. So, that bill basically set up a marketplace. No child left behind. Bush and Kennedy. Bush got it through. They picked a Dallas ISD trustee at the time, a lawyer, who they wanted to be kind of the architect, Sandy Kress. Sandy Kress goes on to make millions working for the testing companies that would. You know, benefit or he worked for Pearson as a lobbyist. So um, these, this bill set up the marketplace for multiple. I mean, like there's layers and layers of opportunity for the pre market. But that iStation company was was uh, kind of a stealthy uh, reading company, a reading uh, software company, emerges on the scene. We get a pilot in Dallas ISD, Richardson ISD, where my kids are, Terrell, uh, Houston ISD. All of those districts piloted it. So the bill passed. It uh, was signed 2002. They piloted in 2003. Suddenly, fast forward—or not suddenly—but fast forward all these years, our reading scores are—I mean, it's—it's it's atrocious. More than half our kids in my district don't read on grade level, mm-hmm. and I—I—I I, I think you can tie it directly to this increase in education technology and all we're spending more money per pupil per year, you know, year over year. And, and we just see a steady decline. And this was happening before the pandemic. So now they'll use the pandemic. Oh, well, the learning loss, you know, the trauma and the kids being sheltered at home. And, um, you know, we weren't, weren't able to access all these kids, but really that learning loss was happening long before we had, a. A pandemic. Yeah. So I call both, you know, I tell them like, uh-uh, no, 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 <laughs> let's go back, like skip those two years. that were basically, you know, you can't really track the testing because we didn't even have everybody accounted for. So go back before that. And you can see, and I believe there's a direct correlation with the technology.
0: Right. Yeah. I did an interview with uh, educator John Taylor Gatto years ago, and he was frustrated. He did the um he did the analysis by testing. He could tell by um when people were drafted into the army, they had to take a test. And he could and he mm-hmm. figured out um vocabulary levels. And basically from World War One to World War Two, he he saw the drop. And then from, you know, like from World um. War II to Vietnam, he could see the drop. And so this uh, you know, dumbing down process has been going on for a long time,
1: mm-hmm. which is
0: interesting because you can see that this and i think the history that goes back i mean the rockefeller foundation the ford foundation has been engaging in these public private partnerships for a hundred year hundred plus years now and it's not working it hasn't been working and now they're taking it to this whole new level
1: no and, and uh i'm i'm familiar with all of those and you know, people will say, "Like who's they?" Because we're t- talking about they. Right. Well, there's uh, there are all kinds of they's out there, but it's the it is an elite ruling class that that uh, imposes a lot of the, these things on us, and and they make they push these things through too, uh, not just through public private partnerships, but the chambers of commerce, and they go to the yes men and the leaders of the communities, and they'll get buy in. And then they're able to to push these agendas through, and I mean, we're talking, you know, a hundred, yeah, you know, a hundred years of dumbing down, and really, the '60s was a it was a huge turning point mm-hmm. in education, um, and and it is a deliberate dumbing down, and I, you may have heard of Charlotte Iserbet, uh, or mm-hmm. Isabitt, I don't know how you say it, but she wrote a book on that, and she went to. Um, gosh, I forget where she went, somewhere traveling abroad with her husband, came back and was mortified at the changes that she was seeing in, uh, in Maine, where she was. And uh, she also worked for the Department of Education and saw these initiatives that were really, I mean, they weren't hiding it, they were trying to create change agents. And I right. see that even to this day, Teach for America and all of these these, um, organizations trying to bring in change agents into the schools. And so much of this has nothing to do. I mean, they use all the buzzwords, you know, like diversity, equity, and inclusion, but I, I always push back on that. And I say, okay, well then we're, how's, how's it working for our black and brown kids that you are supposedly so concerned about. Right. And, it, and they'll usually get some, you know, some, um, you know, they'll have the face of the poster child of the movement and they'll hire somebody, give them a six figure salary and they'll be the DEI or EDI director, diversity, equity, inclusion, equity, diversity, inclusion, whatever, uh, you know, and uh, and then you'll see no, no changes in student uh, and, and, you know, their reading abilities and, um, academic performance. And so they're just empty platitudes. And so I call them out on that. And then, you know, of course, as a, you know, white, uh, suburban, you know, mom, um, I'm really not in the suburbs, but that's just what I get labeled as. And and I, you know, so, so you must be racist if you don't subscribe to diversity, equity, and inclusion policies. But I would argue that, they are the ones who are. It's so racist and it's such a, it's such a, uh, it, it, I mean, it's really, it's criminal to see how they spend all this money and it doesn't do a darn bit of good for these kids. I, I get, I get very, uh, defensive right. about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's frustrating. And one of the things that I, I caught because uh, I listened to the, um, the podcast episode that you, you, did uh, on the social impact podcast about the bullying that's been going on one particular family uh, that you focused on in the schools in terms of forcing the kids to wear the masks and the links that these people will go. Uh, and you mentioned, and you mentioned that this concept of projection onto uh, the family that just you know really doesn't want their kids to wear a mask in school or is questioning you know the authority of the of the school district to kind of impose these mandates on children. Uh, and then you get into this huge fight and the, you know, the, these, the pro maskers are projecting all of this hate or vitriol upon these poor people. And I find the same thing, uh, with, within this whole conversation about race and equity in education like i i actually have no problems with a, a parents or a community deciding that they want to teach their kids whatever kind of history they want to teach or you know whatever foundation like i'm open minded to all kinds of alternatives um and so it's yeah, fascinating yeah i see the me.
1: void with african american studies like bring it on bring, right. bring it like yeah i see the history we don't have the full picture and all right, like add it to it sure right but there, this, there's something else going on We are talking about connecting cultures and these these made up curriculum um, programs, these programs which line pockets, and all it does is breed hatred and division. It actually doesn't do what what um, should be done organically. And right. so they, right. they call it something different every. It's not critical race theory because they can and that's another form of deceptive semantics. They'll say we're not teaching critical race theory in Richardson ISD, and that's true. But they they use CRT like language. There is um, there is an agenda, and they bring in a curriculum where we're not even allowed to see it. We have to have security guards, armed security guards, to go in and see the curriculum that our kids are learning, and these lessons that are. I mean, they are so you would be shocked at what they say. And I think, well, I mean, how, how are we progressing at all? It, it seems like we're going backwards. Right, it, it, we're not making any progress. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, those are things that parents woke up to under the lockdowns and having their kids at home, they woke up and they could hear what they were doing on zoom lessons and that engaged, uh, you know, a whole nation of parents. And really we talk a lot about, uh, the parent party is the, that's, that's the new party. It's not left or right. They're saying, what are you teaching our kids? Who, who? Where did this come from? How is this good for children? How is this going to, you know, bring us unite us as a country? It's not. It's very divisive. Right. And lucrative for those that uh, that put it forward, and a lot of it comes through social emotional le- learning. So I don't focus on CRT. I focus on SEL, which is social emotional learning, because that is really that's setting uh, the the schools there. They're collecting all that behavioral data, and they're sh- they're changing the mindset of the children their worldview their attitudes behaviors beliefs and then it's setting up for these social impact these global social impact markets and it it feeds ai and it feeds um this uh i mean it's all going to be fed into this whole system of, of blockchain it's all about behavior change
0: right well that's what i mean i think that's just exactly what we're talking about i mean you mentioned like an organic evolution and that's how Cultures and families and communities need to evolve in this organic way. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, what we're seeing is this standard standardization of all learning, so that everybody's learning the same thing, and then this imposition. And uh, maybe you could go a little bit deeper into the concept of social emotional learning, because what mm-hmm. I'm seeing more and more is that instead of the organic growth that happens at the family and community level is this standardization of practice across all of the education system. And then like you're talking about, like they're literally, I mean, it's a form of indoctrination, right? It's not really education. It's indoctrination.
1: Correct. And it, it is indoctrination. And if it want, if it seeks to change the child's worldview and it seeks to change their their attitudes, their values, their behaviors, their beliefs, all of those things. And then you feed it into what the, I mean, these are measured. Um, they're measuring their behavior changes. All of this can be scored. They can be nudged. Uh, they use software to do it. In many cases, they, they have invasive surveys that they'll give the kids questionnaires. I mean, my son, it was kind of funny. This was a few years ago. I think it was Naviance, which is uh, college for your college transcripts, but uh they were asking him where uh his faith and he he put um I think he put he took it literally and he said church of christ cuz he knew we you know we worship christ in the church mm-hmm. we're not church of christ but it was just funny i was like we're, i said first of all we're not church of christ and second of all you are not allowed to fill out any of those stupid surveys it's none of their business and he's right. like okay okay but i you know they pressure you and i will say no and have them call me uh i can't tell you how many times they have you know, the the burden and the onus seems to be on the parent to have to catch it after the fact, uh, and they just they, they they just do it because nobody's really holding them to this. So there's all kinds of data, but the the SEL, the social emotional learning, I think is um, that's something that I've been doing Google alerts for a couple of years now. And I've been seeing it for probably six, I'd say maybe six or so years, I've been really focused on it. And Mm -hmm. uh, my friend Alice Linehan is the one that clued me in that it was happening. She's a Texas parent, mom, who, who's uh, an education activist and researcher. And uh, so, you know, I started seeing it and I would, talk about this all the time and people just weren't ready for it but now they're ready for it now they understand that this is a this is a true uh i mean it's a, it's a complete takeover of this schools it is indoctrination and um and it really takes uh it, now that they're weaving it in and embedding it in all subjects it's really difficult to opt out of it because through the education technology and through the devices you you've no one standing in between that kid and that device Right. and the teachers don't even have access sometimes to what the kids are seeing and that and and think about this too that it can be they can be computer adaptive assessments like this maps maps it's uh, from a vendor called nwea i think this is probably going to be to be the thing that will replace the big bad test at the end of the year the bad star test you know the standardized test right some legislator will We'll pitch this as a solution. Everybody will be cheering. Oh, he's such a hero. He got rid of that big, bad standardized test. But the computer adaptive assessments will be far worse because they'll be all year long. They won't be the big thing at the end of the year. This will be ongoing and you'll have it, And it can put a kid in a double bind where you're forced to, you know, like my friend Alice, her daughter was forced to question her faith because it was saying, well, if there's a loving God, why would you have hurricanes and tornadoes and floods backs the kid in a corner? So they have to answer, well, there must not be. A-. Right. It was like a philosophy question really in an English class. Right. So you'll see that kind of thing. We really won't be able to stand between the kid and the device. Um, and you're seeing a lot of uh, inappropriate relationships with teachers and students that's increasing. And I think that is because the parent really is kind of pushed aside you can access your teacher at midnight if you wanted to. Oh, I have a question. You know, you can email your teacher and then that can start up all kinds of inappropriate relationships. We're seeing that spike, uh, you know, uh, I don't know the, the increase, but it's, it's significant. They're keeping track of that. Uh, some some uh, organizations are following that. How many teachers have inappropriate, men and women have inappropriate relationships with kids because they can access them through apps and devices after hours.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's what I think is most concerning to me is how much all of this is inserting itself in between the child parent relationship and parents are really asked essentially to have zero responsibility for their kids' education, which really includes their entire worldview. So what's the, you know, to me, that's the point of parenting. I mean, that's what we're doing is yeah. we're helping our kids, you know, and we're, we're educating them from our perspective, from our worldview, and that's creating our cohesive family unit and to ensure insert- Well, that's what
1: they want the wedge in the family. They want the wedge between the kid right. and the family, because then, then you can, if you can have them earlier in the morning, keep them later at night, you feed them all three meals. What do you need the family for? Really? It's just a place to sleep. We even see an increase in Public uh, boarding schools. I know we've got this. Uh, it's not. Wow. It's not technically public in Dallas, but it's using public funds for the first time. The city council gave this this nonprofit four hundred thousand dollars or so towards a boys' home, and it's it's basically you know it's and, and I, I understand the argument is always well there are kids who don't have families, there are kids who don't have parents who care, there are kids who are hungry. Of course, you would want to have a you know some sort of continuum of care, a way, a way to refer. We've had that for a long time now, and I would also argue that um, you know teachers have been providing social emotional support and learning for children since the beginning of time. That's mm-hmm. just that that comes innately, you know, that for most teachers that is uh, something that they do organically. So when you put in a, a more standardized model, then you've got. Uh, there, it will eventually be on the test. So not only will you see the academic questions, you'll see the the behavioral, you'll see the non-cognitive, you'll see the affective domain. They want to tap into that. If it's put into the TEKS, which is the Texas standards, it will be on the test. And so I try and remind people these are conservative legislators that usually bring in all this junk because they think oh well kids aren't you know they're not getting their values at home and they're not learning how to behave at home so we need to teach character traits in the schools and if we mandate it so we don't mandate it the teachers won't teach it and so then you've got this whole tail wag- wagging the dog thing and and then you've got uh, all of this embedded in the standards which means they're going to be forced to teach it which means they're going to be testing it and in, uh, in Every Student Succeeds Act, there is, I believe it's a fifth indicator that that will be the non-cognitive. It will be tying to the social emotional. All of that will be measured with also with their academics. Oh, and, and the schools will be I followed this, too, that the schools are now uh, in my district is a classic case of this where the superintendent wants to be the hero, the mask, you know, all this junk related to COVID. Mm-hmm. She's all focused on, on the, the medical stuff. She's cozy with the commu- the, uh, the commissioner, the, um, or the commissioner's court and the County judge and the health and human services department. They're making decisions, not our school board, not the parents, but they're making arbitrary decisions for the school district because really what they're making the schools are turning the schools into Community medical centers. They they no longer prioritize academics. You're going to get your health, your shots there, your vaccines, your well visits, your your uh, feminine products, your food, um, any mental health services. All of that is going to be in these community hubs, which
0: right, were even, formerly
1: the schools, even birth um, control, birth control. You got it. So all yeah. the sex ed stuff. There's been this whole. Um, you know, decades of grooming. And I just watched a documentary last week. It was called mind polluters. And I was blown away because all of the things that Alice and I have been researching Linehan, uh it was like, they were able to put it all on the screen, even Alfred Kinsey. And I have a psychology minor and, mm-hmm. and I was, I went to school to be a, a, a special ed teacher, but I, I studied Kinsey through not only the education classes, but also the psychology and to see how that was all pedophilia being normalized, uh, doing human experiments on babies, four-year-olds, sex experiments on them. All of this has led, and they they lined it up. I mean, they, they, they really uh, did a great job connecting all the dots and what you're seeing in the schools today and what was happening back then.
0: Shocking. It's just fascinating to me. I mean, just to go back to this idea that the family unit is breaking down. I mean, to me, parenting is basically, it's like a muscle, you know, and you have to exercise it and you have to exercise your right to be a parent and to watch over this long period of time, the state is taking over that role so that, you know, parents, I think, I mean, it is breaking up the family unit. This is extremely serious. I mean, this oh, concept- it's working. Right. Right. This this uh, this allowing the government to take over all of this, the, the emotions of your child, the sex education of your child, um, you know, teaching them about what to eat. Every aspect of their life is now being handed down and the parents are powerless to be able to impact what their kids are being exposed to at school. It's just so frustrating to think, you know, how can you even change this?
1: Yeah. And parental rights is something that I've been, I've been a part of the group and, uh, and, and they're, they're really great about understanding the the laws in different states and, and helping parents to be able to, to advocate for their rights, because we do see, uh, some states have better biometric, uh, uh, controls or, um, what am I trying to say? It's, uh, protections against Mm. biometric data being collected, which is is perfect for a time such as this, because we haven't really had a problem in the past, but to be able to collect, um, you know, retinal and, and, um, you know, fingerprints and all these things that are even swabs that they can collect on a child. uh, There are, you know, these devices can uh, detect your, you know, the the retinal um, engagement. Uh, There are, um, there, you know, some countries are wearing those head bands and they can they can tell if you're engaged your pulse Uh, all of that kind of biometric data can be collected on a student and education is the most data mineable industry in the world because when you think about all the senses and all the things and and the development of a child and tracking them from you know womb to tomb Mm -hmm. it is uh in in um, every lesson every the competent competencies is a word that They've been trying to shift education from a classical model to this competency-based or outcomes-based model, which is, uh, it brings every child to the same point. It sounds good, but when you look at how you've got to move through these different competencies in order to show mass, to demonstrate mastery, it's not the same as the classical traditional model of learning, uh, which I'm in favor of. Um, And that's, you know, a whole other can of worms but there were women back in the 60s that fought that off there were women in the 90s that fought it off and the difference now is that we we now have the technology that will make it so easy it'll be turnkey you don't even have to have a teacher you really can just put a kid on the device move them through the different competencies and uh, get the desired outcome that they want for the child but are they really um You know, are they learning in the way that that our brains and our bodies were designed to learn? No, I would say no. I don't think it's good for them.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I did did an interview a while back on the concept of the Trivium Method, which was sort of like the classical Roman uh, education model. I think it was used well into the 19th century before a lot of this public education and these philosophies started to To manifest, but the focus on that was to teach people, you know, critical thinking, how to think for for yourself. And this is, you know, something that I touch on on this program quite a bit is that people need to learn, you know, that there's a huge difference between thinking for yourself and learning how to think for yourself, which is to my mind, what education should be about and then being indoctrinated into this path forward that's happening to our children in these institutions. And we don't even know that it's happening. It's just being imposed from above and we don't even Mm -hmm. really know, like, I mean, maybe you could go into exactly where all of this is coming from, or how, you know, how is this just continuing to get pushed through the public education system? And even when parents try to fight back against it, they're basically powerless, and it continues to to roll, you know, it's like a unstoppable force that's rolling through education, that's indoctrinating kids into a worldview. I mean, it's social engineering at its core, right? So they're Yes. or someone is social engineering us and we're trying to stop them and and uh, it's really challenging
1: <laughs> I mean I, I, for me I just I really dumb it down because it's so complicated I, I really yeah. just boil it down it's just good versus evil and so I think evil you know moves through the decades it doesn't you know just picks a willing participant. And uh, you know, I'll say the enemy. I mean, I, I really do believe good versus evil, God versus Satan, and yeah. that there are those who are, who seek to control us, and there are those who believe in free will and and um, you know, having that sovereignty to be able to make decisions for yourself. And I think um, you know, my rights come from God, and so if you don't have that eternal perspective, you're gonna be like, "What do you mean your rights come from God?" Well, I the, the, my inalienable rights that that come from God, and so. Um, it's it's difficult, you know, when you're raising a child. You you want those you 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 want those parental rights. Those are my God given rights, mm-hmm. uh, and you watch them being chipped away. And of course, there are situations where there's abuse, but they are, you know, that and those things should be dealt with through the law. But to to be to put to I guess to. Infringe on my rights to decide if my child wears a mask or not. I just, I do not believe that that is the right of the school to do that. And people will use the whole well, seatbelts. I mean, you wear a seatbelt. Yeah. yeah that went through the legislative process. I still don't think that they should be able to tell me I have to wear a seatbelt, but I do wear a seatbelt because it's the law. It went through the process and, but masks are not, it's not the law. It's a mandate that has right. been imposed on us and then we don't even have any public debate in my school district we just asked for can we just have a debate where we can present here here's those here are the statistics on this kind of mask and is that like we no debate so they they basically you know they they um they made an arbitrary decision. They didn't even take a vote on it. They just gave the superintendent carte blanche. Uh, she has since left, and we're seeing an epidemic of superintendents leaving. We, I think, there were eight in the Metroplex uh, just this, you know, the last few weeks. And so, you're seeing, I think, um, a mass exodus of these leaders because they they have not been focusing on education. They know the the writing's on the wall, and they're going to have to be held to account for it. And they, the, they're not doing their jobs, their most basic job, they're not doing. And at some point, the school board does have to I mean they're, they're supposed to be making sure they make their measurable goals year over year, and they're not. And, and so I don't know what's going to happen, because uh, who wants to go into a sinking ship in a district that can't seem to make any progress, because they don't realize it's because they're focusing on everything but learning. Right. So, of course, the kids aren't learning. It's
0: simple, you know, I've thought about how alienating it must be to be a teacher um, because I feel like teachers you, you know to me in a free society, teachers would be making their own curriculums, and then parents would go, "I like that curriculum, you know can I, I want my child to learn from you and and that kind of relationship, that kind of relationship based on voluntary consent. Uh, would be mm-hmm. something that's fostered, but these teachers and the the people that are in these institutions these public education institutions I mean they also have to follow the system you know they're they're they have they're, no no real freedom to decide what they teach the kids and and even when you're trying to you know as a as a parent, and this is what just boggles my mind about the whole system. You know, you have these parent teacher conferences, and you go and you talk to the teacher, you're concerned about what they're teaching the kids, and it's really at the end of the day. does anybody have a choice what's going on? Like this thing is just moving over us. The teacher mm-hmm. kind of is in a position, and certainly if you're a principal or a superintendent, you basically have to enforce this stuff or you're gonna you're gonna get pushed out. You won't. Yeah,
1: yeah, and they pushed a lot of the institutional memory. The older teachers, there was there was kind of a move back um, twenty ten to twenty twenty, I would say, to uh, to get rid of the seasoned teachers because mm-hmm. they were they were skilled enough in the old way. Yeah, they would give them pro- professional development, but you really couldn't uh, change. You know, they they had a fixed uh, mindset in a good way. And, uh, and and so they could just kind of shut their door and do it the way that they knew that the kids needed. And maybe they could kind of just go through the motions and pretend like they were doing all this new stuff because every two years we would have some new fad, new curriculum, new way of, you know, all this fuzzy math and all these tricked up ways because you, and I figured out you can't make money on the old school math and reading. You have to trick it up. You have to rebrand it. You have to give it some, you know, stupid name. And, right. and so the old school ways aren't lucrative. I mean, my, so I pulled my youngest out of public school for fourth and fifth grade. And I figured out, so there's this little private school down the road. And I grew up with people who went there and, and then fed into the, the public junior high and high school later. And so our curriculum, it mirrored each other. We had solid language, solid math. Well, slowly over decades, it has moved away. And so think about this private school has been teaching it the same way. They have a fifty-year-old curriculum. They don't do, they don't go through all the fads. They don't change. And so it's a very low tech school. And the kids, when they feed into the junior high, and high school, they do very well. They move mm-hmm. to the top of the class. So I've tried to get my district to go and see it. How are they teaching there? Or go find an old English teacher who taught in our district and ask them, show them how you're teaching it now. And then they'll tell you exactly what you're doing wrong. I mean, this is not rocket science. It's actually pretty simple. Children are, I mean, situations are complicated, but you, you send them to school, you want them to learn and children in poverty, if they're denied, okay, so say they got family issues and poverty and all these issues. And you've your schools have have abandoned their primary role. They lose twice. Peg Luxick is a uh, an education uh, researcher and activist, and she's uh, been doing this for decades. And she was the one who pointed that out. And I thought, you know, that's so true. They lose twice. I mean, right? They 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 um, it's it's, it's a, it it's a really a tragedy because education we know opens doors. I told you I worked with unemployed people coaching them. And I could just see, you can tell if they don't know how to articulate they can't, some people, they couldn't even put thoughts together to organize their thoughts, to put a resume together because they had not been given those skills in school. So, I mean, so it affects their income, their future earning potential. Sure. All of it.
0: I mean, that's, what's so amazing to me I'm thinking about so many parallels actually between what's <clears throat> been happening in education and what we're seeing is the, I would say the failure of the 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 healthcare institution in the United States too, where we've seen doctors uh, over the last 30, 40 years, losing their independence and being assimilated into this bigger machine. And then mm-hmm. the the fascinating thing to me is that when, when the machine fails, it's like, it always doubles down on what it's already doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, well, That's that didn't work. Point. Can you change, you know, and they won't, I mean, even now with they the lockdowns, it's like, we have to lock down harder. Not enough people are wearing masks. That's why it's failing. Mm-hmm. It's like, maybe it just doesn't work, you maybe know, try work. something else.
1: Or just leave people the freak alone, you know, like just let us make our own decisions for ourselves. And if it really yeah. was about health, our 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 health leaders we're never talking about health so you know in, in private we're all going okay are you taking vitamin d and zinc and are you doing this and this is right. and sunshine are you going out like all the things and and which work and then you've got them going we need a mask and we need to socially distance and they're saying nothing about health meanwhile you know we find out The people who've died of COVID who were vaccinated have four comorbidities or, you know, all these issues, all the stuff we knew from the beginning, because it's common sense. And they use the CARES money to spend it on propaganda and, you know, nonsense. Meanwhile, people died because we knew knew from the beginning it was diabetes. Let's address diabetes because it's a way bigger threat than this virus.
0: Right. Right. And the, that. and the same thing's happening in education with the, you know, they pass these education bills and then a few people who are indoctrinating students not interested in teaching real critical thinking. As you say, it's not rocket science. Like, let's just talk to the people who've been doing it and it's working, you know, and figure it out. But yeah, it's not profitable for these big corporations that are publishing the textbooks and making the standardized Tests. I mean, we just found out, I just found out this morning, you know, the Biden administration wants to give everybody free COVID tests and it's like, well, wouldn't you like to be, wouldn't you like to be the guy that runs the COVID test company right now? You know, that's a good
1: captive market of all Americans that, you know, let's just keep, let's just keep testing. And the more you test, the more you're going to, I mean, it's, it's perfect. It's like, I mean, it, it will never end. and That's the goal, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, okay. So then, you know, I I think that there are people who just can't get their head around the fact that this could be a conspiracy that that people could have, have truly conspired to to implement something like this, and and you know we don't know for sure anything, but it sure it sure looks like it's the perfect crisis yeah. to implement, and you know, and and um, you know, Allison McDowell and I have been researching this stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, she came to visit with me, uh, two years ago. In fact, it was MLK day, She came to Dallas. And I remember just this sense of urgency. Like we just felt like things were, they were progressing right. in a way that we just knew. Um, and then weeks later, then all this hits. And I, I mean, it was like all the things that she has been putting out there on the, the impact investing and the biosecurity state and internet of bodies, all of that, how we can see oh my gosh it was the perfect it's a perfect crisis it covers everything it's i mean it's amazing and so if you don't and if you don't believe in the whole good versus evil then you may see it like now there's no way that that could be uh, right they couldn't be conspiring but um, when you see how it's locked everything in place it's very it's abundantly clear to me that we're in this it's a, some sort of spiritual supernatural battle that
0: we're you in. are listening to this you are listening to the first free hour of the shift with doug mckinty for access to the full feature-length versions of the podcast go to www.theshiftnow.com and subscribe for the audio version for just six dollars a month Access the full-length episodes in video form through rockfin.com by subscribing at The Shift with Doug McKenty landing page. For $9.99 a month, you gain access not only to The Shift, but also all other premium content material hosted on the platform. Find out more at www.theshiftnow.com store. Detoxify your body, decolonize your mind, make The Shift. I spent way too much time like, arguing my own point of view, you know, we're all on social media and we're all like, I mean, I just like, I kind of dove headfirst into the, say the Ivermectin argument being like, this, you know, this really works, you know, and here's the studies and this and that, and I'm doing all this. And I, after a while, I started thinking to myself, like, this is just my personal choice. Like, why do I need to justify it to the world? And it's just so fascinating to me that like every single little tiny personal choice that we should all make about our own lives and how we raise our kids is become this huge political debate right and then the biggest none irony of, your, of it all in your business yeah right it's none of your business right. first of all but the the biggest irony of all is that n- none of this debating changes anything because the system just keeps rolling on you know like they love it that we're arguing with each other like this because we're not stopping them you know <laughs>
1: i know it really does. it does it pits neighbor against neighbor and we're so divided and you can see it like i was saying with the school board meeting you got those your masks those are not masks i mean they they are begging to be they just like please mask us please make us wear two please make us wear an n95 like they just want they're they're just begging to be to be uh I don't get caged, I guess. And they're like, look at those birds out there who are flying around free. We can't have that. We need them in here in the cage. Yeah. This is, this is what's best for, for society. It's just, it's beyond me. I can't, I mean, I just, I was just born with some sort of, I can't, I can't be caged like that.
0: Yeah, I know. It seems like a few of us are kind of able to see through it. Um, And then I, I don't, You know, I always question, actually, sometimes I feel like there might be, it's that hundredth monkey idea that really there's quite a lot of people out there that are like, man, something's not right. Something doesn't make sense. And that, you know, Mm -hmm. if we can just change that hundredth monkey, then all of a sudden there can be this pretty quick shift to get people to kind of stop, you know, stop doing it. But it sure feels like an uphill battle right now.
1: Mm. It does. And after seeing that, that blockchain deal with the the fitness clinic that's like this well-known uh, Cooper aerobics center in Dallas. It's like world renowned when people come from, from all over and to see them partnering with the schools on this blockchain thing and seeing how fast all of, I mean, just with the social emotional learning mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's just sweeping the nation. Everybody's talking about it and it's being implemented everywhere. I mean, we're talking, uh, I mean, a global it, it's, um, uh, I I don't know. It's hard to know where to spend your energy because I just, I can't be still. I can't not, I can't just lay down and, or turn a, you know, turn a blind eye to it. I have to do something about it. And I wouldn't, I mean, if I didn't have hope, I wouldn't be doing, you know, this and talking about all of it and trying to help people understand. Um, I do have a unique role in my background and that I have the, the margin to be able to spend my time on this uh to help people understand sound the alarms wake them up say hey you know this doesn't smell right uh but it's like is it enough i don't know it's not a future i want to leave my kids and grandkids in yeah. i don't accept that so i have to do something yeah so i, I on swinging
0: i hear that ready <laughs> Well, um, we've got just a few minutes left, so it's kind of time to start to wrap it up. But I wanted to maybe finish up on this idea uh, of having a more nuanced conversation with people. And I do think that a lot of people are Mm -hmm. really confused. Um, You know, a lot of what I try to talk about on this show is that the left-right paradigm doesn't really work in terms of – and because so many of us – I mean, this is what I've noticed, is that people are so – Yeah, they're so ingrained in their political ideology that they can't have the nuanced conversation that it really takes to like, this is what's really going on. I mean, you know, the, the concept of the public private partnership is the way that these corporate entities are are creating these captive markets through government and then profiting wildly off this standardization of everything because then they have these huge captive markets. I mean, I, that's just the thing about the vaccine that just blows my mind. I can't believe people can't kind of see it. I mean, do you realize they've just made a captive market of everyone in the world? It's perfect. Like, yeah, it's exactly.
1: You can just keep them coming back from more. Yeah.
0: and they've got to like, get boosters, you know, sorry. Like, you know, you got to like, get really? boosters. You know? Yeah. Look at this.
1: Uh, I've I have this on my phone. It's like, um, uh, that's, a good, that's like there first job second job you know it's like booster omicron uh, Delta Omicron. Right? like how many are you gonna do are you how many are you gonna say yes to that's why I asked my friends like some of my close friends I've grown up with I'm like because y'all got the vaccine we're never gonna stop getting the vaccine like you should have just if everybody just held firm and we're like I'm gonna wait until like, I do a little bit more research like really yeah. you couldn't have waited to that to go to that game or that concert or that trip like just wait. And then everybody holds firm and then they're like, Oh shoot. We couldn't pull the wool over there. Like they're not going to do it, but instead everybody's like, okay, I'm just just giving the stupid thing. Okay. I'll do the second one. And then they're kind of like, well, nobody's really asking for the third one. As long as I have that card that says I have it like, there's no timeline. You could have had it over. I mean, there's no order in the whole thing, which I love because it shows that it's going to be harder for them to impose because it's so willy nilly and, And so it's, it's disorganized, but we know that they're moving toward, I mean, they're working towards having some sort of, uh, you know, longitudinal, like, a um, they're going to have a a database that has all the, the vaccines in there. And and eventually when we're on blockchain and we're all, then they'll be able to impose it. But for now we need to resist and create a lot of friction and be that, um, wrench, I guess you could say.
0: Yeah, there you go. I hear that. I mean, that's, um, you know, like I keep hoping that, okay, you know, here's the Omicron variant. And, you know, now people really are like, do I have to get a third booster? I'm going to have to get a fourth booster, like it's going to become more and more difficult. But you and I know that coming down the pipeline are these vax passports. And then we yeah. and we know that the vax passports aren't just about vaccines, they're about all of your financial data and all of your education data as well. And so, you know, they're going to keep it going somehow. There's going to be another variant until they implement, you know, this whole smart grid system that we're all going to be a part of. So difficult to stand up to. Any advice to people, you know, in terms of uh, your social activism, like how, how do you stand up and fight it? I mean, what, um, you know, what what are some ways to go?
1: I think that we, um, I think it's really good for, I, I really try and connect with people. I'm on the phone all, all day long trying mm-hmm. to just talk to people or meeting with them or, um, sharing, you know, clips and information. And I, that's just, that's all I do is just try and educate people, give them, um, facts and links and data and all the things that they need proof of you know, what's happening and show them so that they can and just empower people to, it's not really about, um, I mean, yes, I would like to see, you know, a tidal wave of parents waking up. But for me, it's like the the one-to-one connections, the human connections, the um, engaging people, uh, helping people. Just uh, you see people suffering, you know, reach out to them, help them. Mm -hmm. And we are all doing that. We don't need nonprofits if we're all stepping up and helping people, uh, you know, to take the responsibility to do it. Uh and then I think um just pay attention to what your kids are learning. Love your kids, talk to your kids, uh connect with your kids. Um, because if you don't, somebody else is going to and they're probably not going to have their best interests at heart. Um and don't be afraid, like I I think it's really important. People need to just shed the whole like worrying about what people think because uh it, you know, that's that's so it's so corrosive to the spirit. I think it just makes you you know, you're just never going to do the right thing if you're always worried about what people think. And so sure. having that courage to just, to say, you got to tell the truth. You just got to keep pressing. I mean, this, we're being honest here. Like, this is, is this what we want? And and having the courage to to call it out. Right. And I, And you have to name names too, because if you're just kind of dancing around the, the edges, um, you have to name names and talk about who's doing what and, and why that's not acceptable. And people don't like public shaming, never go personal, but, um, but do call out the bad deals and the bad behavior.
0: Right. What do you think about the, the kind of a, there has been a bit of a homeschool revolution here in the last couple of years. I mean, people really are getting sick of it. I think the homeschool numbers are getting like close to 10%. The African-American community has been leading the way. Actually there's they're seem to be really,
1: I know. In fact, my friend in uh, the other room, uh, she, she's a black mom, five kids. And she's like, Nope, I am not doing my, my fifth child. I am not putting her in that system. No way. She pulled her out. And uh, no, yeah, it's, it's huge. And I I think it's great. I I wasn't for me, but I didn't have the confidence to think that I could do it. Now I understand I could do it and I should do it. I should have done it. But, um, you know, that was a different time. Now I realize I'm probably going to have to help uh, homeschool my grandkids. I I would not encourage putting our kids in, in the system as it stands today until it gets fixed and cleaned right. up, which I, I have hope that we could, but, um, maybe we won't, maybe we just burn the you know, system down and start over. Uh, I don't know. I, I yeah. think, um, if everybody pulls their kids out, then they're not going to have the the money to. You know, they they get money per butts in the seats and uh, pull the kids out. That speaks volumes to them. Money talks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, and I actually, you know, I'd like to see. I'd love to see, you know, communities really organizing around this because the more people that are homeschooling, then the more people can pitch in, and the easier it becomes. And I think that parents will find that. You know, with a little bit of community support, it doesn't have to be very expensive and super time-consuming. No. Um, Books, know, paper,
1: pencils, good yeah. teachers. It's really simple.
0: And quality time. Quality time with the kids instead of all yeah. this standardization and alienation that's been going on. Agreed. Well, yeah. great, Lynn. Thank you so much for coming on. I really yeah. appreciate the work Thank that you. you've done and that you're doing. This education, I mean, it's, it's actually to me, it's clutch, right? I mean, this is where we all learn about our worlds. And the more people that are getting the world view from within the system, the harder mm-hmm. and harder it's going to be for people to learn how to think outside the box, you know, and yeah. they're going to be indoctrinated into it. And all of this abusive behavior that we've been talking about, it's just going to be normalized. It already mm-hmm. is so normalized. So thanks for standing up against yeah. it. Um,
1: yeah, well, thank you for having me. And thanks for, for sure. what you do. And I, I love that. Uh, Alana Freeland. Mm -hmm, I loved that. That interview was
0: great episode. Thanks. You want to let people know, you know, where they can find out more about your stuff and and your podcast and all that.
1: Yeah. The podcast is social impact with Lynn Davenport. It's on the offbeat business network. And, um, so you can find it on rumble and, and all the the major like Spotify and, and all that. But, um, I'm on Twitter, Lynn S Davenport. I'm an aggressive tweeter. I love Twitter. It's great even though it sensors, it, uh, I usually get around it.
0: I know. It's funny. I, I liked, I, uh, I connected with you on Twitter and I, and I was thinking about it today I was like I don't think I've seen one of her tweets yet I don't, I don't shadow band. what is going on with that I know right I, likewise I to, right it's a right blockchain there. with a Y I like all <laughs> these stupid things right? yeah
1: yeah I
0: know
1: okay fine you're just what making me think, think more yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> well right. right on I'll let people know you've been listening to The Shift and I'm your host Doug McKenty. and you can find uh, all the episodes of The Shift best place to go is www.theshiftnow.com where everything is uh there in one place uh my video stuff is most of it's still getting up on youtube but um if you want to see it all you'll have to go to rockfin or odyssey uh and all of my uh i put audio versions up on soundcloud so you can find it there and i am at d McKenty on twitter uh, and you can just look me up on facebook doug McKenty. Uh, Or I also have a shift with Doug McKenzie page that I post to as well. So um, you can keep track of the shift there. And uh, thanks again, Lynn, for coming on Um, again. Thanks for your work and and, uh, love to keep track as you continue on down this road. And hopefully we'll see some real positive changes as a result here in the next couple of years.
1: Okay. All right. Well, good. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah, you bet. Have a great day. You too. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, uh, my interview with education activist Lynn Straw, Davenport host of the Social Impact podcast. I was happy to have her on. Um, She's a great complement to the interviews I've done in the past. I was fortunate enough to speak with John Taylor Gatto before he passed away, did a more recent uh, interview with David Rodriguez on this subject. And uh, it just, to me, is actually probably the number one most important issue really in the country that we should all be talking about all of the time, which is trying to decentralize what all of our kids learn. It just, we create our worldview. If everybody learns the same thing and a centralized organization is able to teach everyone the same thing, then we all get a similar worldview, similar ideas of government. How can we grow up and live in a healthy democracy when everyone has been educated according to the same curriculum. I just find this to be actually quite outrageous. I think if people took a step back and thought about it, I mean, do we really have a democracy when we have such a centralized form of education and everybody gets essentially indoctrinated into the same way of thinking about politics and the same set of family values, the same set of values, the same systems of of morality and thinking? And I mean you know, constructing an entire worldview, uh, thoughts about how we live and what should be important and what is virtuous. I mean, education is so core to what it means to be an individual and have a self-identity that this is just a super important topic. So I was happy to have Lynn on to really kind of dive deep. She, like a lot of people, have been really frustrated about the fact that over time, more and more emphasis has been placed on these standardized tests. And this has been an issue for such a long time. And uh, I completely understand parents' frustrations when they show up to the school boards and they say, hey, you know, we don't really like what our kids are, are learning. We'd like to see the, uh, the system take a little bit of a different track. I mean, ultimately, frankly, I actually believe in unschooling or homeschooling or homeschooling collectives or any kind of options because the system prevents itself from evolving. Uh, you know, when parents show up and they say, hey, we want, I mean, even ideally, we live in a democracy, we should be able to vote people in to, to these school boards that can then reflect through the curriculum what our Kids are learning in school and it's just not that way. People get on these school boards and they're pushing paper for the system and they're forced to teach to these standardized tests, which, like I said in the introduction, this is the opposite of teaching critical thinking. Lynn goes into this in our interview. I mean, classical education didn't just teach facts, but it taught how to think about the facts, how to think about yourself, how to individuate yourself. Um and how to come to your own conclusions about things and be a strong, individuated human being, the system right now is doing the opposite of that. It's feeding people a curriculum based to the test. And then we're basically building little robots here, right, who go out into society, all thinking the same, all all feeling the same about what's going on. And Lynn, of course, with the social-emotional learning thing that's coming on, with the blockchain tech, with the emotional nudging that's going to be going on in the future. Uh, They're just going to start collecting mountains of data on every individual kid, on your kid. They're going to know everything about them to the point where they're going to be able to manipulate them on an emotional, psychological level to a minute degree and then nudge them into these directions. I mean, this is brainwashing. This is like next-level brainwashing technology, right? So uh, really appreciate the fact that Lynn's activism is on top of this and trying to educate people, like, hey, wait a minute. Um, you know, maybe this isn't the best way to, go- to move forward when you think about education. Um, and we talk about just the frustration of parents not being able to have this influence on how their kids learn, what their kids learn, the worldview that they're creating. And ultimately, we're talking about, you know, a breakdown of the family unit. This is what parents do. This is what they've done since the beginning of time is raise their children inside their worldview. And then over generations, you're developing like a strong individuated family unit. Uh, without that responsibility, right? Then over time, parents, I mean, why bother? I don't have I'm too busy working for the corporation to have time to uh, dedicate to my family's worldview, you know, my family's belief system. And uh, over time, the parents and the kids just become more and more worker bees for the corporate government system, unable to think outside the box, unable to build strong and healthy individuated children individuals and family units families in general and of course that's going to extend to the general community i mean there's a pretty strong argument that uh, this has been going on now for over 100 years, and we're all pretty much in a bad way about this right now. I mean, it's it's so central to the issue to liberate the next generation from this, this kind of education and to allow parents to really directly be able to make the decisions about how their children think and feel about the world around them. And like Lynn points out, this is, uh, with the social-emotional learning and the new blockchain technologies, it's going to be next-level stuff unless uh, we stand up and we put a stop to it and we start to localize these decisions on a community level where we can really make a difference. So um, really just want to thank Lynn once again for her work and thank her for coming on the show. If you're interested in finding out more about her work, I think Twitter is probably the best place to go. The name of the podcast is The Social Impact Podcast, so you can Google that. I should say uh, you should look that up on your preferred search engine. And uh, her Twitter handle is at lynnsdavenport.com, and I'll have that in the show notes. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, Really appreciate it. You can find out more about The Shift at www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, I'm about to wrap up the Psychology of Lockdown series, so we'll be putting that out. I'll have, you know, full playlists with with uh, so you can listen to all of them in a row. Uh, I think that's coming out pretty solid. I, I keep saying to myself, man, I've been talking about the mass formation psychosis for over a year now, uh, so glad everybody's picking up on that one. <laughs> Wish it translated into more hits onto my site, but so be it. At least people are thinking about it. Um, and uh, next week, I'm going to be speaking with filmmaker Marcy Cravat, who just released a film with Dr. Andrew Kaufman called Terrain. So we're getting back into the Terrain germ theory conversation, and I'm looking forward to that. I worked with Marcy back in the day for a little bit on the roundtable discussions. And, uh, so, uh, I'll be looking forward to talking to her again. Um, Also, I wanted to tell you guys I have started a new blog. It's uh, on Substack called The Populist Papers. I'll be writing an essay about why I called it The Populist Papers, because I know it's such a controversial word, but I think the blog's, it's already started out being just a little bit controversial, so uh, we'll keep that trend going. and uh, and then, of course, you can find me at Doug McKenty on Facebook, at D. McKenty on Twitter. Um, the podcast is up on iTunes and all the big podcast hosting sites. Uh, and also, I'm recommending Rockfin for people to go, 10 bucks a month, and you can get the feature-length versions there. And think about hitting the website, www.theshiftnow.com, uh, where you can sign up for the newsletter uh, or subscribe there. For six bucks a month for the feature length versions as well. So, thanks everybody for listening, uh, and we'll see you again next week. Take care.